Today we start a brand new series uh, that we'll be reading from the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter 37. Before we get there, though, let me, let me talk to you a little bit about the goal of this series. For me, the goal of this series is for each and every one of us as Christians to think about what is our objective. What is our goal when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ? Unfortunately, I think for many people, the goal of being a follower of Jesus Christ has dramatically been lowered to a fact that most of us just care about doing enough to be saved. And so we've turned Christianity, in a way, into fire insurance, where our entire goal is to just done enough so that when that day that we're trying to avoid comes and I finally pass away, that instead of me going to the bad place, hell, I get to go to the good place, heaven. And the unfortunate part about this is, is in any endeavor that you take, when your goal is just to do the bare minimum, you will never see excellence. It just won't happen. And what's sad about that in many ways is, one, when you don't pursue excellence, you will never taste the sweetest nectar, you will never taste the best fruit, you will never have the best experience that comes from being a follower of Jesus Christ. You'll get enough, but you will never truly fully experience the joy that comes in him when you're just trying to get the bare minimum. The second thing that's a problem is doing the bare minimum attracts nobody. Right? When you watch a, a coach give a speech to his team before they take the field, do you hear about him saying, you know what, let's just do the bare minimum to win today, guys. I don't really want to crush him. I don't want to play excellent. I don't even really want to play that creatively. I would just like us to do the bare minimum to win the game. That's it. No, no coach inspires that way. No coach talks that way. No athlete is motivated that way. They have a dream of grandeur. They have a dream of excellence. They have a dream of achieving what no one has done before. They have this dream of giving everything they've got to do something no one has done before. And often as spectators watching people do that, we're intrigued. We're sucked into it. Because even if they're not excellence, that effort that you see, that all-in that you see, it hits something here in the soul. Anybody watched the Astros the last couple of nights? Anybody? No? No baseball fans? I'll be honest with you. I only watch baseball in the playoffs. Because there is such a dramatic difference between regular season baseball and playoff baseball. Regular season baseball, those guys got 162 games. They play for like nine months. Sometimes they're playing five, six days in a row. It's real easy to take a day off then. And you can tell. You'll watch sometimes and you can tell, like, that guy's not into it today. Sometimes you'll even see the whole team's not into it. Coach doesn't put the best players out. He, everybody's just relaxing. Everybody's at peace. It's not a game that matters, but playoffs, oh my goodness, every single play, every single moment, you can tell every player is given everything they've got. 
Unfortunately, I think if we were to ask the people outside this church for their view of our participation in the sport of Christianity, I think they would go, it's quite boring. I'm not sure how many of them would look at us on a day-to-day basis and go, look, I don't fully understand what they're doing. I don't know all the rules. I'm not exactly sure how the game works. But these guys are giving you everything they've got. They're all in. In fact, sadly for Christianity, a lot of us, what we've made Christianity is what you're doing right now. For some people, this is the totality of the definition of Christianity. On Sundays, for an hour, or if you come to our church, an hour and 15 minutes, you will come, you will sit in a pew, you'll kind of sing some songs, and yes, I'm picking on you guys because I heard you guys when Maria said she would stop singing and asked you guys to sing. It was weak. It was weak. Listen to the pastor preach, and boom, I'm a Christian. I did my thing. That is not Christianity. And that sure as heck is not going to let you taste the greatest of what God has to offer. And sure as heck not going to inspire anybody in your lives to run down this path with you. When we go through this story, the story of Joseph, my hope for you is that each and every one of you will raise the bar on what you're trying to achieve in your relationship with God. Christianity is not about doing just enough to be saved. It's about the fact that you, every single day of your life, every single breath, every moment that you are here, you have the opportunity to walk down a path following the most awesome, most powerful, most amazing being that the world has ever known. And that he has asked you to help build his kingdom. On that path, you see love like you've never felt before. You experience joy like you've never felt before. And you do things that have a value that don't just stand for today or for tomorrow or after you're gone. They stand forever. Forever. And yet somehow some of us just don't seem to be intrigued by that. Why? I remember when I told one of my buddies that I was going to become a pastor. And uh, it, it was funny because he looked at me and he goes, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I think this is what God wants. I think this is what I got to do. And he looked at me and he goes, you're going to have to follow like all the rules now. All of them. And I was like, I know. All of them. And it was funny because... He was a Christian, I was a Christian. Both of us should have known that was the stupidest thing that you could possibly say. Because when you go through the Bible, there is no like, hey, layman section, and then, hey, you reach this book, and this book's for pastors. You know, pastors, here's the, here's the extra credit behavior you have to do. No, the rules are for everybody. All the same. But I'll be honest with you, I don't actually think we approach things that way. Most of us probably could not, off the top of our heads, go through the qualifications of a deacon. And the reason for that is most of us have no desire to be a deacon. But here's the unbelievably interesting thing about the qualifications for a deacon. Not a single one of them has to do with talent. 
There's no qualification that talks about how well you manage money. There's no qualification that talks about your ability to preach or to teach. There's no qualification about your quality of service. Every single qualification of a deacon is about character. It's about your spirit. It's about who you are. And so it's funny because I've many times talked to people about the qualifications of a deacon, and I see the people who have no desire to ever be a deacon, their eyes just glaze over and they go, eh, not for me. Why? If God in his book has listed the qualifications and says, this is what represents my best. These are the characteristics that represent my people who are running at me with everything they've got. These characteristics represent the people that I want others to look at and say, do it like them. Why won't every single one of us look at that list and go, that's what I'm striving for. That's what I'm going to do. Whether we become deacons or not, who cares? But to know that we're qualified, that we've seen God's measurement and gone, I want to go after that with everything I've got. For so many of us, that's not the goal in any way, shape, or form. Hey, Justin, if we can go to the next slide. Starting in 1886, track and field had a goal that became a huge deal for the track and field community, which was the goal of running a four-minute mile. And so from 1886 to about 1950s, you see everybody trying to reach this goal and failing brutally. It reached a point that about 60 years into it, you even can find doctors writing theses and reports that say it's not physically possible for a human body to run that fast. We don't have the right amount of muscle tissue. We don't have the right amount of strength. You have some people stating it's a physical impossibility to run a four-minute mile. It just can't be done. It cannot be done. And approaching the mid-50s, what you have is you have people getting to about four minutes and two seconds for a mile. But the problem becomes is even after they get that close, for seven years, no one's able to get any closer. And so again, this mentality kind of sets in like, this isn't possible. It's just not. But then on May 6, 1954, Robert Bannister, Richard Bannister, a British athlete. He runs the first sub four minute mile. He runs it three minutes and 59 seconds. So for 70 some years, this has been a documented record. Nobody's gotten close. And finally, this guy breaks it. Now, here's the crazy part. Not that he broke it, which was an amazing feat. The amazing part is what happened next. 45 days later, three other people broke a four minute mile. In the next two years, 46 more people broke a four-minute mile. And since then, thousands of people have broken a four-minute mile. What happened? How do we go from 1886 to 1954, nobody runs a four-minute mile, and then in a span of a year, 50 people do it? you know what happened? Everybody's minds changed. Because the moment the one guy did it, you know what everybody realized? It's not impossible. It's not impossible. 
And in fact, if you know much about Bannister's career, he wasn't the best guy. He wasn't some super freak. He wasn't a gold medalist. He wasn't this guy that cleaned all the records out. And so when he broke it, what people knew is if he can do it, well, then I should be able to. And it's amazing how once the world realized that barrier was gone, so many people started to achieve. Now, why do I share that story with you? I share that story with you because I think a lot of us have made an artificial barrier on just how much we can reflect God in our own lives. I think for a lot of us, the limitation of our holiness, the limitation of our experience of God's goodness and God's awesomeness is not Him. It's not the world around us. It's not the circumstances in you're in. It's not your knowledge of Scripture. It's not the church you go to. It's you. It's me. It's us putting a ceiling in and saying, this is as good as it gets. You can go no further. Brothers and sisters, I think that's a lie. So as we go through this series, what I want you to pay attention to is what the focus is. The focus is I'm not talking about the things that you and I do to be saved. This is a message for those that are saved. This is assuming that you have come to God, that you realize he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sins. That three days later, he rose from that death, not just defeating his death, but all death. And from that moment, forgiveness has been laid at your feet for you to pick up if you want it. And this message is to those people who have picked up that forgiveness and are running the path to follow Christ. But if we're honest, not always sprinting with everything we've got. This message is for those people to reevaluate where they stand with God and ask, is this really as far as I can run? Is this really as fast as I can run? Because I think we all have just a little bit more to give. Let's flip to Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37... And what's interesting is, is we're going to take a, a slight detour. I love when you come to Scripture and you just read it through. Because the beauty of God's message to us is He doesn't just teach us one thing. He tends to teach us a lot of different things. And so today we're going to see the structure of a family that Joseph comes from. And we're going to see how this structure has a lot of impacts on the story that goes forward. And so today's sermon is a focus for us on knowing that what happens at home does not stay at home. What happens at home has ramifications for us. Has everybody seen those Vegas commercials? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Junk. Nothing that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Nothing that happens anywhere in your life stays in that place. And we'll see that with Joseph today. So in Genesis chapter 37, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years of age and was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. 
His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I've had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves guarded around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he still had another dream, and he related to his brothers and said, Lo, I still have another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and to his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture, their father's flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron. And he came to Shechem, and a man man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here. For I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Let's pause right there. For us to understand the journey that Joseph goes on and the character that he displays, we have to understand the situations that he's put in. And so the first situation that we see here is a situation where we have a family that is unbelievably divided. Now Jacob, or Israel as he is called at times, had two wives. And of these wives, he had a preference for one over the other. And since he loved Rachel, his his second wife, more, and Joseph was a child from her, he had this, this, this love for Joseph that outshined the love he had for his other children. And we see this affection, we see this favoritism, we see it displayed in lots of different ways. We see it first in the job that he has. We notice constantly wherever Joseph is, at 17 years old, he's not a, he's not a young child back then. Wherever he is, guess where he is? Not where the other brothers are. So from the assignments that Jacob is giving to his, his children, he himself is separating them out. He's making one set go here, and he's making another go here. He himself is dividing them. Second, we see that he gives this unbelievably expensive gift only to Joseph. Now, you and I, we don't tend to get this anymore because socially everything's changed. But the garments that you and I are wearing, these would be garments of royalty back then. All of us are used to going to a store and You can go to Walmart and get a shirt for five bucks with any color of the variations of the rainbow. It's not a big deal for us. Back then, 
You didn't see that. Dying fabrics, finding vibrant colors. It wasn't just something that was manufactured and made. That was something that took time. It normally meant it was from foreign lands. It was done with painstaking handwork and craftsmanship. A multicolored cloak like this would almost be like a work of art. It would have been something that kings and royalty would have worn. Everybody else would have been in rather drab, naturally colored items. And so of all his children, not only does he separate them by work, but then Jacob comes and gives this tunic, this multicolored tunic to Joseph that says like, you're the boy, you're the one I love, you're my favorite. And not only is it this one-time thing, but it's this garment that he wears regularly that every time you see it, what are you going to think? Well, there's the favorite. This is like being, imagine being in a family with like 11 kids and everybody rides bikes to work, but then the youngest gets a Ferrari to drive. Right, like wouldn't the other siblings maybe have a question about like, like that? That's wow, okay. Not only did he get a car, he got a Ferrari. Okay, that's not trying to send a message here, are you, Dad? Everybody could loudly read this message. And not only that, but then look at the job that we see Jacob give to Joseph. Go see what your brothers are doing and come back and give me a report. Now, any of us who have had siblings, how do we feel about our siblings tattletelling on us to mom and dad? Was that ever a thing that made us really endeared to our siblings when they would run, mom, dad, guess what Luke's doing? No, that would normally result in, yes, I would get in trouble, but then a punch being delivered later. And so everything that you see happening here is a terrible, terrible job of parenting by Jacob. One, he has a favorite. Two, he makes that very, very clear who his favorite is. And that love of the father is so important because in it, what is given is confidence, identity, self-worth. All these things that are so intrinsic to who we are. And Jacob, because of his bad decisions, has created an unbelievable rift in this family. And you notice, each time Joseph's actions are brought up, what is the response of the brothers? Hatred. Right? They hate him because he's loved more. They hate him because he gave a bad report. They hate him because he has this tunic. Hate is what is growing between these siblings. And, and so a couple things I, I want you guys to think of as parents. First off, God's word regularly tells us to not provoke our children. In Ephesians 6.4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word I really want you to focus on is that piece of provoke. God is all about parents running the home. God is all about discipline. God is about spanking. God is about very clear structure of mom and dad run the house and the children obey. And that structure is not just important for your own home. It's important for what it does spiritually to your children. One day your children will fully understand the concept that they not only have 
earthly parents, but they have a heavenly father. And so if you have done your work as a parent and you have built a home where your child understands, I obey dad. I do what dad says. Well, then that day that they understand and truly see their heavenly father, guess what you've already built into their mindset? I obey father. I do what father teaches me. See, parents, we have an unbelievable duty. We have an unbelievable gift. You and I, as the earthly parents, get an opportunity to teach our children the concept, the prototype of what it is to have a parent. To have somebody who loves me, somebody who cares for me, somebody who disciplines me, someone who teaches me right and wrong, and they see all these things. Now, the beauty of this is, is at one point, our children will get smart enough to realize that you and I are not perfect. I'm just now, with Ty, starting to have those moments where he realizes I'm not actually Superman. It sucks. I'm much more like the blind belief of my younger children that dad's perfect. But they're starting to realize, like, oh, wait, dad's a person. Dad's a person. Yeah, he loves us. Yes, he has strengths. But there, there might be actually some things he's not fantastic at. And one day they will have be smart enough and wise enough to assess me and see huge character flaws that I have. But the beauty is when that happens, they will also experience God the Father and realize, but I do have a perfect Father who loves me perfectly and who has no flaws. And because they have learned in this relationship discipline and obedience, they will be able to use that in the relationship with God, and that will set them on a path for success. We see the same topic of provocation come up in, in Colossians. It says, fathers do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so what God's saying is, look, parents, you've been given an unbelievable responsibility, but be smart with how you use that. Be smart. And so he warns against these parents of provoking their children, pushing their children in the wrong direction and in the wrong ways. And to me, that is exactly what we see Jacob doing. Jacob has decided to focus on his short-term affection for Joseph and not think about what that is doing to his family. And he is pushing these children to places. He is pushing one to be ostracized. He is pushing the others to have a hatred and an animosity for their brother. Now look, would we hope that those children would have the character to overcome that? Yes, we do. But I'll be very honest with you. The more I have spent time in children's ministry, the more I have spent time with young kids, the more I realize who they are is less about who they are and more about who their parents are. When I, when I get a kid and I teach the kids on Wednesday, when I get a kid who visits us and like won't sit still, doesn't believe in following any of the rules, doesn't think they need to do any of the structure of our class, I, I really don't judge that child as much as I judge the parents. Because what that tells me is this child is used to, in their life, of doing whatever they want. And so for them, they look at me as the weirdo. Like, who are you, dude? Do you not know how things work? My whole life, I call the shots. 
I cry, mom comes. I say hungry, she gives me food. I say bored, I get an iPad. I say we're going here, I get this. We're at the grocery store and I cry, I get a candy bar. So I'm really not understanding, Mr. Luke, why when I tell you no and cry, that you go, too bad, sit down. You can almost look at, they look at you like, who did not fill this guy in on how this works? Please, people, we've got someone, he didn't get the memo, he doesn't understand the rules here. Please, somebody explain it to him. And in fact, sometimes I'll see these kids and realize, you had no choice but to be this. You had no choice but to be this. And in many ways, when I see Joseph's brothers, I go, this is exactly what he's pushed them to do. He has divided his own family. He has made a favorite. He has pushed them apart from each other. And he has set up this war. He set up this war. Now, there becomes a third part that makes their hatred grow even more. And it's interesting. It's interesting because with Joseph, I see some people, when they read this, they want to make Joseph a bad guy. They want to go, look at this arrogant little punk sharing these dreams about how he's going to rule over people. And I'll be real with you, I, I don't necessarily read that. I more read a young boy who's naive and is simply just sharing. Parents, have you ever run into that with your kids where like they just, you know, they're just too naive to understand social context of things? Oh, Jake kills me. Jake, Jake has no filter. And Jake is very observant, and Jake talks a lot. And so we regularly run into situations where Jake will be like, Dad, boys don't wear earrings, right? But the cash register, he's wearing an earring, Dad. Why is he wearing an earring? I thought boys don't wear earrings, Dad. <laughs> I'm like, shh, shh. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you're having a nice day there. <laughs> Right? We've had to learn, like, filter, son. Yes, Daddy has taught you that boys don't wear earrings. But if we see a boy wearing an earring, we're not going to talk about that, you and me, right there in that moment. We will talk about that at home or in the car. But he's that kid. He sees these things, and he wants to talk about them. He wants to talk about all the things that he sees around him. And, and when he says that, I know he has no meaning to offend the guy at Target. He's just curious. I thought this was the way the world worked, Dad, but this seems to go against what you said, the way the world works, so um, I got questions. Let me ask him now before I forget him. And to be honest, that's kind of what I read with Joseph. Joseph has this dream, which the interpretation is not difficult. What he's saying is all of him and his brothers are in the fields. They're all gathering together their crops. They've wrapped them up. And all of a sudden, all of his brothers' bales of crops bow to his. Like, clearly stating he's an authority figure. That's strange. It's a weird dream. So he has this dream, and he shares this dream, and his brothers are like, forget you, man. Not only are you dad's favorite, not only do you get all the nice stuff, not only do you have the cushy job, but now God's giving me dreams that I'm going to rule over you. Forget you. And then he has another dream. And this is why I kind of read some of this, this lack of understanding in him. He has this dream, and he's like, I had another one. And in this time, the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to me. And again, no one has trouble reading this. So like, even the dad's like, wait, you think me and mom and your brothers are going to serve you? Come on, kid. 
And it said when he tells these dreams, what is the response of the brothers? It's exactly the same response we've seen before. They hate him for it. They hate him because he's loved more. They hate him because of the job he has. They hate him because of the clothes he has. And now they hate him for these dreams he's having. And now we're going to see that hatred push the family in a completely different way. In verse 18, it says, When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say to Dad, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And he said this, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their father. And so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. And now the pit was empty without any water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites were coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Mennonite traders passed by, and so they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. I love the brothers bargaining there. Ah, we sh you know, should we kill him? He is our flesh and blood. Let's just sell him into slavery. That's reasonable. Do you see what hatred does? Hatred stirs up this evil. It stirs up strife. And a lot of this was built solely by the way that Jacob was. And so, brothers and sisters, I know this is an interesting sermon based off the introduction I gave, right? I talk about how we're going to raise the bar of our own character, and what we start with is a sermon on parenting. But that's how the Bible works sometimes. You take what God gives you, and it's important for us to understand the situation that Joseph is in. Because what I really want you guys to pay attention over the next few weeks as we go through the story of Joseph is that Joseph, to me, is probably one of the most steady, godly, confident, and good characters in the Bible. There's just not really a lot of things that in the story we were given about him where you ever point at him and go, whoa, that was a disastrous decision. Wow, that is, in that moment, he completely betrayed God. You just don't see that. But there's a very important thing I want you to see about his life. It's not because it's easy. Joseph actually has unbelievably negative circumstances in his life. Joseph doesn't go through one, but he goes through like three different things that for some people would be enough of a reason to just throw in the towel on life and to just call it over. It sucks. It's terrible. And I'll be real with you. I, I get afraid of this, especially in our culture. Our culture has become a culture of victimhood. 
Everybody everywhere is looking for a reason to justify their failure, to justify why they don't have what they want, to justify why their dreams didn't come true, to justify why they don't have what others have, to justify why it's okay for them not to try hard. Everybody's searching for these, these excuses to be a victim. And he, listen to me. I'm not saying some of the reasons aren't real. But they're not enough to stop us from pursuing God. Forgiving everything we've got. And so we start, and where I, where I want to start is you really thinking about this young man. Imagine being 17 years old and your whole life you've had a rich father who has pampered you, nurtured you, and spoiled you. Your whole world has been comfort. You now have been taken by your brothers, your own flesh and blood, you have been beaten and thrown into a pit and you've now been sold to ungodly people to be sent to a foreign nation to be a slave. You don't know their cultures. You don't know their gods. You don't know their laws. You don't know their languages. You don't look like them. You've never experienced any of this in your life. Imagine the fear you'd have. Imagine the sadness you would have. Imagine all the emotions that you would have in your heart and soul. That's where we'll find Joseph tomorrow, or next Sunday. In a world that he does not recognize. And I think for fair, it's a world where we would all completely understand if he just gave up. But that's not what he's going to do. See, brothers and sisters, what I love about the story of Joseph and I hope it's the story of us, is if you look at the circumstances of Joseph's life, it's this roller coaster of ups and downs. And I think all of us understand that. Right? We've all had ups, we've all had downs. Some of our ups are really high and some of our downs are really low. Sometimes our ups were really short and the downs have been really long. But we've all kind of understand this ebb and flow of good and bad in the circumstances around us. But here's what makes Joseph different. If we were to just watch him as character, there are no downs. He just keeps going. He just keeps growing. He just keeps getting closer and closer and closer to God. Whether he's on a hill in the eyes of the world or he's in the valley in the eyes of the world, it doesn't matter. He can be a slave or he can be a prince. He could be rich or he could be a prisoner. You will still see from this man that what he cares about is being with God. And that's what I love about him. Brothers and sisters, you and I cannot control the circumstances around us. We can't. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how famous you are. You can't control the world but you can control how your soul acts. You can control your pursuit of God. You can control how hard you run at him. And that's what I want to see. I want to see this church as a church of people 
who have not limited themselves and how close they can get to God. I want to see us be a church that has not limited how much we can reflect his beauty, his love, and his power. I want us to be a people that no matter what the circumstances of this world are, that anyone who knows us will look at us and go, that guy, that gal, they're running at God with everything they've got. Everything. That's what I hope we are. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your good word. Father, that you've cared enough about us not only to make us, to love us, to die for us, to wash away our sins, but also, Lord, to give us the glorious book of the Bible, which reveals to us who you are, your word, and your truth. It's such a gift. Father, my prayer is that each and every one of us will think about our relationship with you. And that, Father, we will see those areas where we can get better, where we can get stronger, where we can chase you with more, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we become a people that give everything we are and everything we have to be your children. Father, we love you, we cherish you, and in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. As Maria comes up to sing, I'll be up here at the front. Uh, Brother Matt will be in the back. Brother Justin will be in the back. If there's anything on your heart that you just want to have somebody else pray with you about it, feel free to come up and see us. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, you can seek us out after. We are always here to pray with you. We are always here to listen to anything that's happening in your lives. Maria? Let's all stand.
in the back if you need prayer. Sometimes when I'm singing, I just think about how awesome it is to know that in these moments, we get to put a smile on God's face. When you think about all the things he's given us, about the beautiful lives we have, about the so many blessings, that when we just lift our voices and we lift our hearts to him, that we get to bring our Father joy. What an awesome thing to know. 
I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, it's always a blessing to worship with you guys. I want to remind you of two very important things. You've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline by your Father. That means you're dangerous. Say it, I'm dangerous. No, you got to say it like you mean it, okay? Put a little bass into it, like, I'm dangerous, all right? There we go. Thank you. Over here, this was good. I like this. You guys need to work. These guys are doing it right. And you have a mission, and that mission isn't to come to church and sit in a pew. It's to go outside those doors and to go make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So get to it. Have a great week. I hope to see you back here exhausted next week from all your hard work. I'll see you guys. God bless you.